sermons introduced to you last week, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Philippians, and there to the first chapter, we'll be reading the first two verses of Philippians chapter 1. Oftentimes when reading a letter, we might tend to skip quickly over the opening uh, comments as though they're unimportant, uh, particularly the greeting. That is, of course, unless you uh, might be head over heels in love, maybe, with your honey, who uh, sends a letter to you. And in that case, you pour over every single word, don't you, Uh, from the very first. Uh, Because every one of them, in that case, is freighted with importance and with significance. I, uh, when I was courting Debbie during college, I loved to read the first word of her uh, letters uh, to me when I'd get them out of the mailbox. Dear John, they said. And I believe she meant it. And she, she did, of course. Uh, although it took some coaxing, I must say, and, and some uh, coaching for me to convince her how dear I was to her. And... Uh, It was a while before she'd admit uh, that she loved me. I still have the letter in which she does for the first time. But that's another story. The point is, words have meaning. Even in the greeting of a letter, they have meaning. Uh, Especially in this letter. uh, Words that might at first seem to be perfunctory. Indeed, with Paul, because he writes so skillfully and so carefully, the pen the likes of which we've not seen again, and because he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, every one of these words are important. And the Holy Spirit who inspired them also illumines them. So before we go to the word, to prayer. Holy Father, thy Spirit's work we need. The same Spirit who inspired these words must also illumine them, open them up to us, open our eyes to see them, our hearts to receive them. And so we pray, our Father, that you will do this work. Speak to us, we pray, our Father, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just a few weeks ago, I preached to you on the importance of remembering that we are saints. Uh, It was one of those sermons, I think, that we love to hear. Uh, We love to hear those things that the Bible calls us, things like sons of God and redeemed children of God and adopted and beloved of God and saints. We revel in knowing that we are all these things and that we bear these glorious titles that are abounding in grace to us. And indeed, every one of my commentaries on Philippians goes into detail, into length on the matter of our sainthood from verse 1. And I would have done exactly the same thing this morning in all likelihood had I not preached to you on this just a few weeks ago. But uh, interestingly, every one of those uh, commentaries quickly passes over the earlier phrase. And it seems to me the more striking phrase the name by which Paul calls himself and Timothy. Uh, We translate it as 
servant in the majority of our English uh, versions, servants of Christ Jesus. But in the Greek, the term is more vivid. It reads quite literally, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I can't help but wonder if the reason why we hear so little about this name that speaks of our slavery uh, to Christ, while we would have very little trouble finding plenty of uh, teachers to tell us all about our sainthood in Christ, I see I can't help but wonder if it is because we don't particularly like to think of ourselves as slaves. After all, we breathe deeply the air of our culture where individualism and autonomy and freedom, meaning more and more uh, absolute freedom, uh, are at a premium. We, we could talk all day long about our rights, about our liberties, how no one has the right to tell us to do anything against our wills. It's woven right into the very fabric of our American existence. I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free. Ad nauseum, we've heard this. And to be sure, there is freedom in Christ like there is no other freedom in all the world. Indeed, the apostle elsewhere will go to lengths on the matter of the Christian's freedom. But it is his glory to think of himself this way. The way he begins to renew his uh, friendship with the Philippian Christians. To think of himself and to write of himself as the slave of Christ Jesus. This was Paul's chief identity, the identity which defined everything else that he did in his life as an apostle, as a minister. He was, first of all, a slave to his master, Christ Jesus. I wonder, as American Christians, if we were to take up and write like Paul did to a church, would this be the first way we identify ourselves? Would the first thing in our minds be to write as slaves? One can think, for instance, uh, of the way I might introduce myself to my neighbor. How striking it would be if I were to say, I'm, I'm John the slave. But if we were to do so, we would be in good company. One can think, for instance, of Moses, who is called over and over and over in the Bible, the servant, literally the slave of God. The prophets, too, as a, as a class in Scripture, held that same title as in Amos 3, verse 7. For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants. Again, we could translate it slaves, the prophets. Abraham, too, is called the servant of God. God remembered his holy promise, says Psalm 105, his holy promise, and Abraham, his servant or slave. Job, Isaiah, Daniel, Samson, David, Solomon are all known in the scripture by the title servant of God. And Paul's not the only one of the New Testament, by the way, to be called by this name either. Peter, Jude, and James, and John all introduced themselves in their letters using that same Greek word, doulos, slave. 
I continue to use that word this morning, even though a majority of our versions say servant, instead of uh, slave, because though I'm still torn between the two sides of the debate on translating uh, this word, I cannot help but think that Paul and others in scriptures who call themselves by this name were making a specific point. Particularly in the New Testament days, the use of the word to describe oneself would have left a dramatic impression. Paul could have chosen to use a different Greek word to convey a softer idea that would lean more in the direction of servant versus doulos, slave. He doesn't. He could have. And I'm certain that was not lost on his first readers either. Remember from last week that Philippi was like a little Rome and slavery was widely practiced in the Roman culture. Slaves were everywhere in the Roman Empire and in the fledgling Gentile church. They were not only domestic help and uh, laborers of the empire, they were also the clerks, the teachers, uh, the doctors, the professional people generally. Economically and politically, the Roman Empire was based on slavery. And in some places, slaves would outnumber freedmen 10 to 1. It is quite possible uh, that more of the people in this church to whom Paul wrote this letter were slaves than were not. So they quickly understand the connotation Paul was making when he called himself a slave of Christ Jesus. Do we? Does it strike us right between the eyes that he wrote, this one who wrote that we should imitate him as he imitates Christ, calls himself a slave? Oh, you say, but Paul was only speaking of himself as a minister, like the prophets or Moses or the ministers in our own day, who even today in, in our own denomination, even in our own covenant seminary library, wear those collars that um, have the white tab in the front, those collars that, that are a picture, a symbol of slavery to Christ. But it's not only the ministers and the prophets in the scripture who are called slaves of Christ and of God. The entire people of God is called his servant, his slave, even as we heard in the assurance of pardon a few moments ago from Isaiah. Our Nehemiah, you remember, believed very, the very same. He prayed as the servant of God for the servants of God who had sinned against him. All of us are servants. We are slaves to God who are in Christ Jesus. The question is now, do we think of ourselves that way? Do you think of yourself as a slave? And as a result, do you live that way? When you make, wake up in the morning, does it occur to you today that I am a, a man, I am a woman, a boy or a girl under orders from my master? I am a person with one purpose and one only today to serve my master who owns me, who bought me and to whom I belong. That is who I am. That is my identity. I am a slave. And so are all true Christians. As Simone Weil, the French Jewish 
philosopher and convert to Christianity wrote, quote, Christianity is preeminently the religion of slaves. Slaves cannot help belonging to it. And I among them. So if that is who I am, if I am a slave, what does that require of me? Well, I searched the scripture this week to find out the answer to that question. And here, dear flock, are some of the answers, not all of them by any means, but a good sampling of what it means to be a slave to Christ Jesus. First, because you are a slave to Christ, you must give undivided allegiance to your master. Luke had recalled to Paul, no doubt, as they traveled together and talked. Uh, Luke must have told Paul about those striking words that Jesus had spoken to them in, in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The concept was not lost on Paul, who wrote later to the Corinthian Christians, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. In other words, there is for the Christian simply no room for divided allegiances. One master or the other, whatever or whomever he may be, one or the other, you can't have both. Now, we make masters out of all kinds of things, don't we? We make masters out of the obvious things. We make masters out of money and make our decisions based on money. We make masters out of our business. We make masters out of pleasure. We make masters out of all sorts of things, even those things that seem at first legitimate things and important things in our lives. We put all sorts of things between us and total, complete, absolute surrender and allegiance to God. But we also make uh, masters out of things that much more subtly shift our loyalty away from our master and move our allegiance over. We make masters oftentimes out of men, don't we? We make men our masters, especially those whom we admire so easily. We do it every day. I know I do. So easily are we carried away with worry and fret over about what so-and-so thinks about me or, or what, what he's saying about me or, or what she's thinking. And so we go ahead and we choose our next action, our next word, based on what will bring the pleasure and approval of this person or of that person or of this person. I know that you know exactly what I'm talking about. We can go literally days and days without hardly a thought to our master in heaven who is watching us and waiting for our obedience, demanding our allegiance while we run about madly worrying about what people think about us, what men are going to say about us. It must not be so, Christians. Nothing and no one should ever take the allegiance of our hearts and our lives that belong only to Christ and to Him alone. Not to money, not to men, but to Him. 
We have only one master, and it must be his voice we hear, his approval we seek, his work we do. It's not hard to imagine that Paul had this very thing in mind when he wrote from a Roman imprisonment to the Christians in Philippi. And indeed, it's, it is his single-hearted devotion to his master that put him here in the first place and would drive him even to his death if single-hearted allegiance required it. And as he had one master, so must you and so must I. Which brings me to the second point. As slaves to Christ, we must have undivided allegiance to him. Second, because we are slaves of Christ, we must follow him. That is to say, we must follow Christ where he is gone. Because we are his servants, his life is our life. It becomes our life. A servant goes where his master goes. She suffers what her master suffers. A disciple is not above his teacher, Jesus said, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. In that particular passage, Jesus was as much as promising his disciples, including us, that if they persecuted him, they will persecute us. If he lived a life of suffering, we will live a life of suffering. The Christian is not, in this life anyway, a bed of ease. It is a race. It is a fight. It is a pilgrimage. And it demands of us things that are painful and difficult and wearying. Resisting temptation. Just take that one example. Resisting temptation for us. When it comes, like it did to Jesus, when we care to engage ourselves in this fight, it is an exhausting work. It means denying ourselves. It means battling our flesh. It means striving against the world's constant barrage of seductive enticements. Not to mention the fact that the world hates anyone who lives the Christian life in any obvious way. They hate us because they hate Christ. And if they cannot get directly to the master anymore, then abusing his slaves is the next best thing. Here is the question for you then. Do you bear any of these scars? Have you lived following your master through the teeth of self-denial? of derision from the ungodly to one degree or another, of, of deadly battle, fighting, being scarred in the battle against sin and temptation, against the world and the flesh and the devil. Do you resemble your master in these ways? Because if you have been following him, you will. Remember Amy Carmichael's wonderful poem, so accurate and a sharp blade to us. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent 
leaned me against a tree to die and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me I swooned hast thou no wound no wound no scar yet as the master shall the servant be and pierced are the feet that follow me by thine, but thine are whole can he have followed far who has no scar Christians if we follow our master we may fairly anticipate no we must absolutely expect that it is going to be costly and that it is going to require deep sacrifice from us every day do not be surprised when you suffer as a Christian. Expect it. You are Christ's slave. And as Miss Carmichael put it so accurately, as the master shall the servant be. So as slaves of Christ, we must have undivided allegiance to him. We must second follow him. And third, we must humbly serve him. Wasn't that Jesus' point in Luke 17? If you care to turn with me in your Bibles to it, Luke 17 and verse 7. Luke chapter 17 and picking up at verse 7. Jesus says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me? And dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So also you, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Here was this slave who spent the whole day serving his Lord, his master. And then when supper time comes, still he has to serve his master. And what should, he, what should this servant expect? What should he expect? Should the master thank the servant? Uh, does, does this servant deserve? Has he earned some kind of prize of, of recognition from the master? No. He's only done... What he was supposed to do. He's only done his duty. The master is under no compulsion outside of himself to give this servant any bonuses for just doing what he was supposed to do. You know, we really think, you and I do, we, that we deserve God's favor, don't we? We really think that. Uh, you say, of course I don't. I, I know my biblical doctrine. I know my reformational heritage. I know it is all of grace. I don't deserve anything from God. But the fact is, we say on the outside that we don't deserve this. But on the inside, we really don't mean it. Deep inside, we think ourselves pretty good people. And we think it right that God should have special regard for us and share our high opinion of us with us. 
presbytery yesterday, one of the ministers said in his devotional that we, we do one good thing and we expect a brass band and a parade. And it's true. Oh, we are, some of us are a bit more sophisticated about this than others. While uh, some are like a Christian I was speaking to just this week. He's not from this congregation, you needn't, uh, so you needn't try to uh, figure out who this is. But a Christian who actually said to me this week that it seemed to him, having come to this point in his life, having been a tither for, well, most of his life, having been in church every week, morning and evening, having been faithful at his job, it just seemed to him that he deserved better. He really said that. Several afflictions are coming together all at once, and it seemed to him that God should really let him enjoy life a little more, reward him for his good behavior. He thought he'd put God in his debt and that God owed him a better life. And alas, deep down inside, we all think the same thing. It must be rooted out, but we like to think of our measly works like money we've put into the bank, in some great cosmic bank that we should be able to draw from, borrow against, that we have, that we have accumulated a sort of credit balance with God. Jesus says, no. Once you've done your duty, that's all you've done, is your duty. In fact, is not a single one of us in this room may say with any confidence at all that we have done all our duty for one moment, let alone one full day. No, Christians, God is not in our debt. We are forever in his a slave whose life has been redeemed who has been bought by his master we owe everything to him our every breath our every thought our every moment and nothing less than all we are and all we have belongs to him but this is not our drudgery is it this is not our drudgery this is the world can't understand this but this is not our drudgery this is our delight this is our glory. For one thing, our master is not asking anything of us that he himself has not first given for us and to us. His life of suffering and poverty, of every day battling every moment, moment after moment, hour after hour against every manner of constant temptation until he fell, our Lord did battle worn at night to sleep from the fight all day against temptation. The derision, the abuse, the humiliation, the beatings, the mockings, the scourgings, the crucifixion, all of it, he came to earth as a slave. And as a slave to give his life as a ransom for many. I say he is not requiring anything of us that he has not first required of himself for us. And for one other, this is our glory, to be humble servants of Christ, to imitate Christ. This is unspeakable privilege. This is glory beyond knowing, to be like our Lord. This is what Christians, genuine Christians, love to do. Sacrificial, self-giving, self-forgetfulness, 
self-abnegation, forgetting ourselves, serving him, sacrificing for him, whatever the cost, who come to the end of their day and on their best days say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Look at Paul. He's, he's not complaining about his arrest. He's not whining or even expecting that he, he's really worked hard all his life as a missionary and uh, suffered a whole lot. And, you know, doesn't he deserve a little better than this? That, that, that at this point in his life, he's never enjoyed that extended vacation or, or the, gotten that raise or the car he's always dreamed of. He was a slave. And if chains were his master's lot for him, then rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I wouldn't have it any other way. Or as C.S. Lewis famously says it, I am not, uh, I was not born free. I was born to adore and obey. Yet one more thing should be said about this matter of being slaves to Christ. It means, yes, full and exclusive allegiance to him. It means following him wherever he goes. It means humbly serving him. But Paul was not afraid, as we know from uh, these letters he wrote, even from prison. He was not afraid to think also about the reward that was yet to come to the slaves of Christ Jesus when finally they see their master face to face. Paul kept one eye fixed on that day of glory yet to come. The day that Jesus told his servants about, the day that we also look forward to with great anticipation, whatever we must suffer in this life, whatever unprofitable service we render to our Lord in the meantime, whatever scars we must accrue until then, all of it, Christians, we know, comes to a day much sooner than any of us can even begin to imagine or know how quickly it is coming when we shall hear with our ears our master his voice well done good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your master Jesus master whose I am purchased thine alone to be by thy blood, O spotless lamb, shed so willingly for me. Let my heart be all thine own. Let me live to thee alone. Amen.